This morning's lesson is taken from Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26, the sons of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Thanks be to God. As we stand, let's pray. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Heavenly Father, please would you, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate this word before us this morning. Please would you work in our hearts and our minds as we come to Christ by your calling so we may know who we are in him. We may seize the full rights that you've given us as your sons. and may therefore live for your glory by faith in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you please uh, be seated. Uh, it is, of course, today Father's Day. Uh, Father's Day is a relatively modern uh, invention. Uh, It's American in its uh, current form and timing, uh, but there are many ancient traditions around Father's Day, Uh, the Christian ones often focusing on Joseph, and different cultures, different places around the world, uh, celebrated at different times and seasons. It's not Father's Day for me, because Australian Father's Day is in September, but there we go. Uh, Father's Day, as we know it, though, in the modern era, uh, began in America, in Spokane, in Washington State, in 1910. And it was originally scheduled for the first Sunday in June, but then pushed back two weeks, I love this part of the story, to give the clergy of Spokane more time to prepare their sermons for the first Father's Day. Two whole weeks to prepare a sermon. It was obviously a less hurried time. Well, Father's Day, whenever you celebrate it, of course it's a day that brings some mixed feelings. 
Some, many I hope, uh, will simply rejoice in happy relationships with their own father or in being a father. But all of us come to Father's Day in a fallen world. Perhaps you've lost your dad or never knew him or he was far from the man that he should have been. Some of us may come to it deeply wounded or scarred. Those of us who have the privilege of being dads, uh, even if we're not doing too badly, we all have memories that make us wince, don't we? The The birthdays we missed because of work, the times we were too harsh on our children, and really it was because of our own stress, Uh, not their particular wickedness that day. The times we should just have listened. The times we should have just spent time with our children. I think I said to you recently that uh, in my own uh, family, um, a few years ago now, my own children told me that I was the second best daddy. And uh, they they did that um, deliberately pausing after seeing my face fall. Uh, They wanted that to sink in. Uh, But they then went on to say that I I was the best daddy on earth, which is lovely. I'm not sure it's entirely true, but there we go. That was what they said. But of course, there was a better daddy because we have a father in heaven. For those of us who are Christian dads, there is no greater joy or responsibility than to teach our children that in Christ... We come to know a perfect father. Now we try and model something of that, but we always fail and fall short. But there is a father whose providential love never fails. He always has time to hear us. Who is utterly devoted to our well-being and consistently so, but who is not soft. We learn in this and many other passages of scripture that the children of God will share in the sufferings of Christ. The true Son of God is the only pathway to share in his glory. Well, I'm glad those Spokane pastors lived in more genteel times uh, so that they could spend a couple of weeks preparing their sermons because it means that we come to this passage in Galatians. Today, you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is a passage about the fatherhood of God and what it means for us to know that. You are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So please do come uh, to the passage um, in Galatians 3 and 4 uh, that Rosalind read for us earlier on. It's page 1170 uh, of the Church Bibles. And uh, four headings, uh, all taken from the text itself as we look at this uh, this morning. You are all sons of God, uh, verses 26 to 29. Uh, We were in slavery, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4. God sent his son, verses 4 and 5, And God sent the spirit of his son, verses 6 and 7. Four quite clear sections, I think, under this general heading of what it means to be a son of God. So let's uh, begin as we work through together. And I will show it on the screen today as well, so uh, hopefully you can see uh, where we're going. It's a rich and full passage. We won't have time to explore every nook and cranny of it, uh, but we need to follow Paul's argument here if we're going to unlock the blessing that is ours to receive. When Paul says, uh, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, he's describing the greatest joy and privilege in the universe. There is no higher aspiration. There is no greater reward. There is absolutely nothing we could desire that is not already caught up in this great promise to be a son of God in Christ Jesus. 
Because by nature, uh, this is uh, not the way the world thinks, but by nature, Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, by nature, we are not children of God. He uses a distressing phrase there. He says, no, by nature, we are children of wrath. By nature, we are so caught up uh, in what John was calling last week the sin problem that actually in ourselves, in our own strength, in our own achievements, all we deserve is the unfiltered judgment of God. By nature, we are children of wrath. Now, that sounds so discordant because uh, we try and disguise that and tell ourselves uh, a different story, that other people are worse than us, that we're not that bad. Uh, It's been reinforced by uh, getting on for two centuries of liberal theology in the Western world uh, that talked uh, airily about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man uh, as though these were things that just belong to all people without without exception uh, as some cheap grace uh, that God bestowed without any uh, need to make a personal response to it. That's not the case if we want to be true to what the gospel says. No, by nature, we are children of wrath, not children of God. Now, it is true that there is a general sense, and Paul can use the phrase himself when he's preaching to the pagans in Athens, there is a general sense, yes, in which we are God's offspring, simply by virtue of being made in his image. All human beings have a glory stamped upon them by being made in the image of their creator. Male and female, he created us that way. And although the image is marred, it endures. And it's the basis uh, for our respect of every human being and our desire and commitment to protect those who are most vulnerable, uh, both from those in the womb to those at the other end of life. And everywhere in between. Now there is a sense in which uh, generally we are his offspring even when we don't know him. Now that's not what Paul is talking about here. Now he's saying when it comes to the matter of salvation, of actually coming to know God, we need to know that we are by nature children of wrath and only by grace and invitation, sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now notice what Paul says uh, in here. He says you are all sons of God. He doesn't say you might become a son of God if only you behave well enough that by the end of your life you might have earned this as a reward. He doesn't say uh, you're becoming a son of God. No, he says this is an established fact. Who are you if you're in Christ, if you're one who's believed in him? We'll come on to think about that in a moment. Well, then you are a son of God. It is an established fact. It is your new standing before God. It is not negotiable. It is not provisional. It is absolute. You are all sons of God. Paul writes to the Galatian Christians, and he says the same to the Christians of Hartford. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is the only uh, requirement uh, that is there before us. And we thought a few weeks ago uh, when Jesus was speaking in John chapter 6, and they said, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus says the work that God requires is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever, what, say it together, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life here is the great invitation uh, that stands before all of us 
God loves the world. God has given his son and held the cross up before the whole of humanity and he's invited us to come and put our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do put our faith in Jesus Christ, so we turn from perishing in Jesus' words or being a child of wrath in Paul's words to receiving eternal life, to becoming a son of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And again, uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul spells it out a little more fully. It is by grace you've been saved, he says, through faith. And even this was a gift of God. We come through the uh, gateway that invites us uh, into the kingdom of God. Come and believe in the Lord Jesus. And uh, John was uh, sharing this uh, recently at uh, a funeral. It is, as it were, there is a gateway into the kingdom of God. And on the outside, it's come, come, believe and live. We come into the kingdom of God as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We turn around and we look at the same gateway. And it says there, even though you've trusted in me, even that was a gift of God. You chose me? No, Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. It is uh, this faith we exercise in Christ Jesus, even that is a gift, that all the glory may go to God. This is who you are, Christian, a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But what does it mean to actually be a son of God. We'll just look at the end of that section next. Verse 29. Uh, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, Christian. Uh, now, therefore, you belong to Christ. You've been bought with a price. And we'll think more about what that price is as we come into chapter 4. Uh, we belong to him. And we've become an inheritor. Uh, We have uh, uh, shown ourselves to be Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, That is, I know John was reminding you of this last week when I was preaching in Wharton, uh, Abraham uh, received the promise that God would bless him, that he would give him a land, that he would surround him with a countless number of people. And they would all come through the descendant of Abraham. Well, that was Jesus. And so now we in Christ... Uh, have become heirs according to the promise that God made him. We have more blessing than we could ever dream of. We have the prospect before us, uh, not of a little bit of real estate in the Middle East, but a new heavens and a new earth. And we've become part of an uncountable multitude of those who've been redeemed by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are heirs of all of that. And that's, uh, at this point, why uh, I want to just uh, pause uh, for a moment and uh, dwell on the fact that Paul calls us sons of God here. Because he's using the language of uh, the son as the inheritor, the firstborn son as the inheritor. Uh, We are all heirs. That uh, is the sense in which we are all sons. The firstborn son inherits everything, and that is our blessing. That is why we are heirs according to the promise. And that's why Paul says you are all sons of God, rather than what he could have said, and he does say elsewhere, sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not that that's untrue. Uh, If you're a woman and you're a Christian, you are a daughter of God. Paul says that explicitly elsewhere. But his argument here is one of inheritance. He says in the Jewish law and culture, only the firstborn son inherits everything. And that's the privilege we have. 
We are all the Jewish firstborn son in the family because of what Christ has done. And therefore, we have inherited every blessing of God. Now, I know that takes a little bit of explaining. Um, and sisters, uh, I, I get that explaining to someone that you're a son of God uh, is a slightly awkward thing to do. Well, there are other times when it's difficult the other way around as well. Uh, I'm part of the bride of Christ uh, as a male disciple of the Lord Jesus. Uh, these images that we're given, sometimes uh, they transcend the easy uh, explanation. Well, if I'm part of the bride of Christ, then you're a son of God. Uh, the point is not to get stuck on the language, but to receive the promise. The promise here is not trying to exclude anyone. Rather, it's to show the magnificence and generosity of God's grace in lavishing all his blessings on everyone who comes to put their trust in Jesus Christ. You're the heir of the estate, male or female. You're a son of God in Christ Jesus. Well, if we do uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, what must we do? Well, we must be baptized. Perhaps there are some here who have not yet been baptized. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus. Uh, you've not been baptized at any point in your life. Please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to put that right. Uh, and we would do that uh, as soon as practical. Uh, baptism is the outward sign of the inward receiving of Jesus Christ uh, by faith. And as we come to trust in Christ, symbolized by our baptism, uh, so Paul says we are clothed with Christ. Our clothing does many things, doesn't it? It covers up uh, our nakedness. And there's a sense in which this clothing here uh, covers us up with the righteousness of Christ so that we are acceptable to God. You can also tell a lot about someone from the clothes that they wear. You can often tell something culturally. You can tell if somebody wears a uniform, who they belong to, and what their purpose is. And here when Paul uses this phrase of being clothed in Christ, uh, what he literally says, putting on Christ, he means that this is now our new core identity. First thing we ought to think of ourselves as, uh, if we're Christian people, is in Christ. We are a son of God. We are part of the bride of Christ. We're no longer primarily defined by our ethnicity or by our sexuality or by our mental capacity or by our social status or by any of those other ways in which we judge ourselves and each other. God looks at you and he sees his own firstborn son. You are clothed with Christ. You've put on Christ. And when he looks at you, therefore, he sees one who he loves to the uttermost, who he has credited with righteousness, and who is assuredly his in this world and the next. Because as my predecessor so often said, absolutely rightly, what is true of the king is true of his people. What is true of the beloved Son of God, now that we are clothed with him, is true of us as well. And so we can see why the next verse follows logically. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You see, because we're fundamentally in Christ and we're one in Christ Jesus. So whether you're ethnically Chinese or English or something else, uh, whether you're patriotically Australian, come on, Usman Kawaja, uh, or support other nations or cricket teams, it doesn't really 
matter. All that really matters is that you're in Christ. Because that unleashes all the blessing of God forever. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And the three examples that Paul gives are key. There was a a, a dreadful but ancient Jewish prayer, not part of the scriptures or a biblical mindset at all, uh, where a Jewish man in the first century uh, would wake up in the morning and, and say these words, Thank you, Lord, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Well, Paul says those are the three things that you proud Jewish men in his culture would have uh, thought exalted you in status above the others. Now, these are not accidentally chosen. No, Paul says you're in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There was also uh, in the pagan Greek philosophers an equivalent prayer that said, thank you, God, I'm not a slave or a woman and left out the Jewish bit. It seems to come naturally uh, to domineering men to think that way. And Paul says, no, you're in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Equally loved, equally adopted, equally blessed, equal in dignity, value, worth, and every other word you can think along those lines. Now that doesn't mean we become interchangeable. Christian men are not able to give birth. It does not change the biological reality. Uh, Nor, if we read uh, in other scriptures, does it change every complementary responsibility uh, that we have. And I only emphasize that here because this verse uh, has so often been wrenched out of context uh, as a way of justifying anyone doing anything, anywhere, anytime. We must allow the scriptures, uh, one verse to interpret another. But any distinction of function can no longer be rooted in any sense in a difference of worth. Or value. It never should have been, and here it's explicitly kicked uh, into touch. Oh, there is a fundamental equality between us, and that is the basis upon which we then consider any other difference of function. Well, how though do we go on that journey to the family of God? How do we become sons of God? Paul now, uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, uh, shows us that journey from slavery to sonship. And uh, he begins by saying that all of us were once in slavery. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Paul argues in these verses uh, that all of us, whether we were Jews and had the inheritance of the law or non-Jews, that is Gentiles, and had no biblical background at all, uh, we all began in slavery. Slavery to sin uh, and uh, not enjoying the receipt of these blessings of sonship. All of us begin as spiritual slaves. But even so, uh, verses 1 and 2 are enormously encouraging You see, Paul says here, even when you weren't Christians, even before you'd come to faith uh, in the Lord Jesus, when you were a slave, you were still loved by the Father. And the Father always had a plan and purpose uh, to bring you from slavery to sonship. So it wasn't a, a new idea when God brought you to himself and you first trusted in Christ, No, he had planned and purposed your salvation even before the creation of the world. 
Uh, the, uh, the heir as a child in this uh, language of this illustration here uh, may be in slavery, but he's still the child of the father. He's still the son of the king, though he doesn't yet know the liberty of that because he hasn't yet come through, uh, as it were, to his maturity. Now, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Uh, for the, uh, those who uh, were Jews before they came uh, to Christ, uh, well, they, the basic principles of the world were articulated uh, in the law that was given to Moses. And yet, of course, sin had taken uh, the law and turned it against the purposes of God. John Stott comments on this uh, in this way. Uh, God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as a final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. I still meet people who, when I say, are you a Christian? They say, I try to be a Christian. As so though I've just got to obey the law of God well enough and then maybe I'll come in to this kingdom. Oh, if you try to obey the law like that, it will lead only to despair and condemnation. That's what happened. That's why the Old Testament ends in failure, in exile and judgment. They weren't able to keep the law. It meant their loss, not their gain. Nothing wrong with the law, everything wrong with the heart. What about those who haven't, as it were, got a, a biblical background, an understanding of what they ought to do, and yet knowing they've fallen short of it? What for full-on, proper Gentiles who come uh, absolutely unvarnished from the world? Well, Paul says this in Romans 2. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. That's where the phrase, a law unto themselves, comes from. Uh, even though they do not have the law, so that since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences now bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So Paul says it doesn't matter what your background has been. Uh, in our context, perhaps you've had the most impeccable uh, background in growing up in the church and learning the scriptures. But you read them and all they do is condemn you because you know you fall short of the glory of God. Friends, you're in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Or maybe you've come in from the world. You've got no Christian background. You've never read the Bible. You come in and you sense around you and you sense from your own conscience that you're not living the way you ought to do, even though you can't necessarily find the words to articulate it. And your conscience may have an approximation uh, Paul says in Romans of what is actually in the written word of God. And still you find yourself, no assurance, still you find yourself only condemned. You too are in slavery under the basic principles of the world. The religious or irreligious, Christian pedigree, pagan background, all we are outside of Christ is slaves and we're lost. And then what happens next? Look at verse 4. Uh, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. 
And you just want to say amen and hallelujah when you hear uh, that. How brilliant is the light in the context of the darkness of slavery and judgment and the endless failure of our own efforts to get right with God. And the time had fully come, that is, uh, when God had planned, uh, the first Christmas took place. Uh, All sorts of reasons, doubtless in God's providence, why he chose then, uh, but he did. The time had fully come. God sent his son, uh, born of Mary, born under the Jewish law, which he always kept, the only man who ever has or ever will. Well, there was a time for us as well. And the time was right for us, had fully come in each of our lives. If we're Christian people, that was the moment that God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Maybe we don't remember when it happened. It doesn't really matter whether we can remember it or not. The important thing is, has it happened? Have you trusted Christ? Have you come into the kingdom of God? Have you given up your fruitless efforts to live a useful, rewarded life? which you cannot do and never can, and with the open hands of faith, received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And and look at what God did when he sent uh, his son like that. It were two things, not just one, but two. There's a twofold work here. Uh, To redeem those under law, and so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Let me illustrate that. Um, through something that feels quite pertinent uh, as a father who's about to send his eldest child off to university uh, and has therefore been discovering uh, student loans. What a joy they are. Uh, Mary, over the next four years, uh, God willing, if she gets into university, uh, will uh, rack up an enormous amount of debt, tens of thousands of pounds uh, of student loans. It's the only way anybody who's not born into money can go to university uh, in our current system. And so at the end of her degree, hopefully she'll get the degree, and then she'll have an enormous debt. Now, just imagine, just imagine, this is not an invitation, this is just the wild imaginings of her father. Just imagine if someone at that point came up to her and cancelled those tens of thousands of pounds of debt so that she had zero in the bank account. Wouldn't that be an incredible blessing? It would. It would be amazing. Uh, trust me, it would be amazing. Uh, and I'm not expecting it, but it would be amazing. Well, imagine then if perhaps the same person said, do you know what, I've cancelled your debt, but I'm also going to put £100,000 into your bank account to give you a wonderful start in life. Well, that would be equally magnificent, also equally unlikely, but equally magnificent, but it would be quite a different thing. But you see how those are different things? There is the cancelling of debt, and there is the crediting of an enormous inheritance. And when Paul talks about what Jesus Christ has done for us, he's talking about those two things, not in terms of money, but in terms of the achievement of Jesus Christ on the cross. The first thing he has done is he has redeemed us, that he has cancelled the debt that condemned us in the court of God. He said this in the previous uh, chapter, although earlier in chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus Christ paid the price of all my rebellion so that my account was cleared with God. Of every sin I've ever committed, of every sin I ever will commit, the account is zeroed out. 
The debt is paid. It's why he said he came. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the language of the slave courts. Remember, that's uh, what Paul is talking about. Here we were in slavery under sin. It was our bondage. We could not escape. And just as in the first century uh, world, you could buy a slave out of bondage by paying the redemption price that they would become a free person. So that is what God has done for us at the cross of his son. He's redeemed us. He's redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. So all the curse that I deserved instead has been laid on him. He zeroed out the account. There is no more debt to pay. But then, look at what Paul says next. Not only has he done that, he's done it so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Well, the full rights of the sons are the inheritance of the entire estate. Again, the next verse in the previous chapter elaborates. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. See, this is in the same moment. It's all through the cross of the Lord Jesus, but it's the second act. Not only is the debt cancelled, but now there is an infinite fortune credited to our account. Because now we receive the blessing promised to Abraham, and now the inheritance of the new heavens and earth is ours. Now the righteousness of Jesus himself is credited to us when we do nothing more than receive by faith the gift that God offers us in his son. Can you see how those two are different but equally vital? Let me just apply it briefly pastorally. I'm conscious time is short. You see, again, I meet Christians sometimes who are so thankful that the Lord has cancelled their debt, but yet their mindset is still, well, I still need to really live a good life if I'm going to stay in God's good books. Yes, he's cancelled all my debt, But now I've got to live a life that pleases him or I'm going to be lost. Of course it's important to live a life that pleases the Lord, but not because we might be lost, but because that honors our Father. Because that's the way we sow, as it were, to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Don't hear me saying that repentance and godly living is unimportant, but it's not the way we stay in God's good books. That's the mindset of someone who only knows half the gospel. The debt has been cancelled. They haven't really grasped the infinite fortune that has been credited to them. Friends, we need both. We need to know that sin is gone, but that righteousness is ours. How do we know that deeply? Well, we know it through the work of his Holy Spirit. And we come to the final point. God sent, uh, because you are sons, this is your inheritance, uh, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul says, has been uh, poured into our hearts that we might experience in our lived reality of faith today the extraordinary truth of the gospel that is true in eternity already. It is possible to be a genuine Christian, but to lack assurance. And Paul says here then, know that the work of God's spirit in your heart is to assure you that you really are one of God's own family. 
because you are sons, uh, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by which we call out Abba, Father. Jesus prayed on the, uh, uh, in uh, John 17. He prays to his father for us who will believe in him through the message of the apostles to believe that you sent me, he says, and have loved them, that's us, even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that we would know that we are as loved as he is by the Father. And he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we might know that. Paul uh, expands on this. Romans 8 is another good place to look uh, if you want to follow this uh, up afterwards where he says, uh, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. How many Christians still are in bondage to fear? And Paul says, no, the spirit comes that you might not fear. For you have received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Papa. Uh, It's an intimate, informal uh, name that only a loved child uses of their father. It's the word that Jesus uses to his own father when he's in the garden. Abba, Father, Jesus said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So, friends... We need to pray that the work of the Spirit would be free in our hearts. That we would know how much we are loved, how secure is our position. Not that we might boast, but that we might give ourselves unreservedly and joyfully to living for the Lord here and now. For you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir uh, sorry, Mary, this is the second time I'm going to talk about you today. Uh, but on, on my office in the uh, church centre, uh, um, when we opened the centre, this is about ten years ago, um, you see there's my, uh, my office sign up there, that's, my, that's, my, that's who I am, that's my job, I'm the vicar. But underneath, Mary stuck that sign. It's been there for a decade, many of you have probably seen it. But you see, she doesn't relate to me as the vicar. She relates to the one whose office belongs to her daddy. I always thought that's a wonderful illustration uh, of what Paul is saying here. We come to God because he's our dad. Yes, he's almighty God, sovereign creator of the universe, judge of all mankind. That is true. But we know him as Abba, Daddy. We don't come to him, uh, therefore, in fear. We come to him as a much-loved son. And we labor for him whatever is on our hearts. His word teaches us the gospel, but his spirit applies it to our hearts. Since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Friends, do you know these things on this Father's Day? Do you know who you are in Christ? If you're not in Christ, come. Come and trust him, and you'll receive these blessings for yourself. How much there is for God to do in us as he teaches us his word, as he applies it by his spirit, that we might live in the glorious liberty of the children of God. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, this is such a glorious passage, so full of good things. I pray that you would just write on each of our hearts, perhaps the one or two things that we especially need to hear. Perhaps there are some here who are still caught up in the slavery of sin. Please would you bring them to freedom as they come to Christ. 
Perhaps there are those here who are believers, but who are still afraid, still condemning themselves, fearful that you will do the same. I pray that the infinite dimensions of the glory of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit might so be written upon our hearts that we would know the liberty that belongs to the firstborn sons of God. I pray that we would know that today and always. Amen.